Hi, I'm Keegan, and this is Bunch of Gamers. This is GM Talks, and I am joined with the illustrious Matthew Dawkins. Illustrious? That's new. I've been on a few interviews in my time, and I've never been described as illustrious before. So I, thank you very much, Keegan. I'm a bit of a sweet talker. Um, oh, I know, I know. But I also ask out-of-left-field questions, or so, uh, so it seems. But uh, we wanted Ooh. to talk about... Uh, the newest book in the World of Darkness 20th anniversary lineup, uh, Ghost Hunters. Yes, although I am always happy to receive an out-of-left-field question as well. I think that they are quite exciting. It breaks the monotony of the interview circuit, as, as if I was some kind of celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but uh, yeah, Ghost Hunters, it's not on Kickstarter for too much longer. It's uh, The Kickstarter comes to an end on the 31st of October, Halloween. And we are very happy with how it's done so far. It's a source book for the World of Darkness. It's one of the old sort of black-bordered World of Darkness books, just like World of Darkness Mafia and Mummy and Sorcerer were back in the day. And that means you can pair it with any one of the core books from the World of Darkness, whether it's Vampire, Werewolf, Mage, or any of the rest. And it works. It's, uh, it, it works as a full expansion to any one of those games, and I'm I'm really quite happy with how it's done on Kickstarter. Yeah, and I saw that you guys already hit your stretch goals for ha adding some uh, Monster Hunters as well, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. Yeah, Monster Hunters and Necromancers as well. Uh, there's a lot of uh, death-dealing goodness coming down the pipe, uh, which we will be putting in a separate source book, uh, yet to be named. But yeah, uh, it's all very exciting because it's always a bit of a risk i suppose uh, doing a kickstarter for a 20th anniversary book because there's a certain portion of the fan base and i don't blame them for this they'll see that vampire the masquerade fifth edition is out and they'll think eh, why would i want to buy a book for a previous edition but there's clearly enough of a fan base for the 20th anniversary line and there's enough interest in playing as ghost hunters mortal ghost hunters or maybe just the ghost story genre that this book has proven popular, and much like our Mage the Ascension 20th anniversary books always seems to do very well on Kickstarter. Yeah, um, actually that's one of the reasons it drew me, because uh, when I got in with New World of Darkness first, and I actually enjoyed the, the mortal games and the more uh, visceral slasher horror element mm. of it, so it'll be very interesting to put that in uh, Old World of Darkness. Yeah, it's strange how long that's been lacking, really. Uh, I think the uh, we've we've long been aware at Onyx Path how popular the Chronicles of Darkness core book is and how popular New World of Darkness was when it was called that, the Blue Book. And there is something unparalleled about playing a mortal in this world because you have that Call of Cthulhu feeling of discovery, of mystery, of of terror and and the suspense that comes with knowing that if you open that door at the wrong time and there's a creature behind it and even if, if the players have a fraction of an idea of what exists in this world, then they know that a simple flesh bag is not going to do what do terribly well yeah. <laughs> against uh, against a werewolf or against a spectre or ag against an afandi uh, but you do it anyway because it's part of the story and for that reason i think 
Ghost Hunters and any Mortals game set in the World of Darkness or Chronicles of Darkness really just works well for any gaming group because there's an embedded narrative strength to playing mortals in a world of monsters that is sometimes harder to attain when you're playing monsters in a world of monsters because some of that suspense and discovery kind of vanishes or uh, I guess erodes because you are supernatural yourself you are monstrous yourself you are doing inhuman things just by through use of your disciplines or through use of your gifts uh, but when you're mortal everything is a threat and i think doubly so with uh, the world of darkness versus chronicles since the world of darkness monstrous uh, denizens are that much more powerful than their chronicle of darkness uh, cousins i think yeah chronicles of darkness creatures the splats as they're sometimes called the the, the vampires mages wells prometheans and so on have a more i guess symbiotic relationship with their world uh it's they they aren't necessarily killing it in the same way that it, the world of darkness is doomed you know and, and it isn't just through the gehenna or apocalypse or what have you time of judgment it's that vampires in masquerade are very much positioned as predators and parasites whereas and you know your mileage may vary because different people are going to run their games in different ways but in requiem there's more inbuilt tragedy to that you are essentially a monster who is trying to be human and the the game lends itself to that kind of thing uh, now one could argue v5 does a similar thing because it takes a lot of what made requiem second edition so good but it's quite a steep path for the world of darkness to walk for all of its games to uh, i guess enter that sphere um and ultimately i i always go back to if you want to play a game that's all about fear that's all about building suspense and really gives players a lot of investment into which they can onboard without any prior knowledge than playing a mortals game and in this case ghost hunters is an excellent way to introduce new people to that world absolutely uh chronicles mortals was my teaching game until uh call of cthulhu actually where if that no one played any kind of role-playing game before i'd start them on chronicles uh or new world of darkness at the time because dice equals dots made sense to them all that and then the only thing that was easier was percentages. Yeah, yeah, well, uh, and I, to be honest, and some people were probably surprised to hear it, my favorite game to run is still Call of Cthulhu. Probably not the thing to say in a, um, <laughs> in, a, in a podcast about Ghost Hunters, but it's true. I find that playing humans in a dreadful setting as in there it is full of dread you just need to know where to look is a, an excellent way to introduce a new role player to horror a lot of role players aspiring role players people who just want to get into the hobby can immediately understand the concept of playing a fantasy game and that's interesting because the fantasy genre of movies and tv shows is far less i guess um popular than the horror genre uh you know game of thrones aside 
and Lord of the Rings movies aside, there haven't been a huge number of elves, dwarves, orcs, uh, and dragons fantasy series that are terribly well acclaimed. But horror it has its feet firmly put on the ground. People know it for what it is. The ghosts and ghost stories and movies and TV shows, haunting TV shows, found footage movies, that kind of thing, have been very popular for the last 20 years or so. And that means there's an immediate hook. People can relate to that. They've got empathy. And so something like Call of Cthulhu or this game is just really useful for getting someone who wants to experience a horror RPG without needing to know a hell of a lot about any role-playing game. They've got their frame of reference just from living in the world. So back to the Ghost Hunters then, uh, with our little tangent, is since this can be played with any of the core books, I'm curious as to how, uh, what core rules you think this book goes easiest with, and then which one it might be the hardest to use Ghost Hunters with. Oh, that's a good question. I've not been asked uh, yet. Now, system-wise, I mean, I would say Vampire, only because the character sheets for your Ghost Hunters have the Vampire the Masquerade virtues attached, just so that there's... Um, it's an easy-to-understand concept, the old conscience, self-control, and so on. But uh, uh, in terms of character sheets, hmm, and... And yeah, which game? Yeah, and system wise, I would still say Vampire. And the reason I would say that is because, and it's a really silly reason, I guess, but the abilities in Vampire the Masquerade don't have anything unique to Vampire on the sheet. So when you're building your character, you're looking at a bunch of abilities that anyone could possess. As soon as you start entering Werewolf and Mage and, and Changeling and Wraith, for that matter, uh, there is always one or two skills or knowledges that are very specific to playing that creature. So that's one reason. But in terms of the core system, the storyteller system, it, it works across all games in the same way in terms of things like combat, initiative, how you do an extended action, that kind of thing. And so Ghost Hunters RPG doesn't have those core rules in. It doesn't have your attributes and skills, or attributes and abilities, I should say, listed in it because it assumes that you are going to be pairing it with a game for which you already have those rules. Uh, in terms of which world I think it pairs with best, or which game line, uh, were I to do a crossover immediately, I'm tempted to say Werewolf. Really? Uh, yeah, Wraith is the obvious choice. I mean, Hunter the Reckoning is a, is a pretty good choice as well, but um, I don't know that there's a huge number of groups playing Hunter the Reckoning right now. But Wraith's big disadvantage is that if you, let's say, did a crossover group where three players were playing Wraiths and three players were playing Mortals, that's a lot of game time spent ignoring half the group, potentially, uh, unless you're all puppeteers or Risen or something like that. Whereas what I particularly like about pairing a Ghost Hunters game with Werewolf, uh, why, why I like that is because... Wells already have that inbuilt uh, communion with spirits and totems and so on, fetishes and the like. Uh, 
and werewolves aren't necessarily savvy enough outside the occasional silent strider to know the distinction between a spirit and a ghost and a ghost can have the same kind of effects on a ken let's say a spectre might have the same effects on a ken as a bane or a femor or, you know a, a pack of femori or something like that so there's a nice crossover there because werewolves may need to exorcise a ghost without actually understanding what it is and they may be trying to use their usual gifts to approach it as if it was some kind of bane spirit and for whatever reason they're not working and this is where your mortal ghost hunters come in because while it's unlikely they're going to know what this creature is first of all unless you play them with that foreknowledge they can they're going to approach it with a sense of the mundane and you need to approach ghosts with a sense of the mundane to understand them and um, what i mean by that is and i've said this in an interview prior but i think it's pertinent is if I, I, I'm an atheist in real life, I don't believe in anything supernatural myself. Uh, I don't hold anything against those who do. But saying that, I feel I would be more inclined to believe in ghosts than I would vampires or werewolves. I feel like if someone told me and it really impressed upon me that they had seen a ghost or experienced something, or even if I experienced something that I couldn't understand, I would be more likely to rationalize as a ghost than I would a vampire. I couldn't exactly tell you why, um, but for, for me, there is uh, fiction and reasonable and fiction and unreasonable and i put that uh, i guess undead blood sucking immortal as unreasonable whereas i put the idea of ghosts as slightly more reasonable and so when i think of mortals in the world of darkness they're not gonna make come to the same conclusions as werewolves because they know nothing about the worm or the weaver or what have you and then probably not even going to recognize that these creatures are werewolves unless they shift in front of them and even then you've got all kinds of lovely delirium stuff so the humans are going to approach ghosts as if they are ghosts they're going to approach the ghosts with the same kind of knowledge pop culture knowledge that we have in our world and it's weird to think it, but a lot of the supernatural creatures in World of Darkness completely lack that pop culture knowledge because they are so immersed in their own culture. Werewolves are a prime example of this. They are so embedded in what it is to be a Garou, a member of the nation, that they really don't fit in with regular humanity. So I think you've got a nice odd couple mixture there and you could have a group that essentially has drama and friction but is also teaching each other bits and pieces that is grounding the werewolves in well look there is a world beyond the world you can perceive and you've got werewolves who can teach these mortals and there is a world beyond the one you can perceive as well so yeah that's a long answer but that that's um that's what i think i think werewolf and ghost hunters surprisingly go very well together Okay. That actually plays into a joking thing I had in my head of the first Ghost Hunter game I'd run where they'd bump into a silence rider just going, what are you doing here? <laughs> yeah, silent striders kind of ruin it all. Uh, but I, I think there's, there's lots of uh, lots of tribes in the Garo Nation that probably think oh, yeah. silent striders ruin it all. The Setites certainly 
uh, among the vampires think the silent strider has ruined stuff yeah it's true so then uh to the other part of the question which one do you think would be the most difficult i know you'd mentioned wraith simply because of the two potentially um ignoring half the group but is that your choice or was there another one that came to mind as one that might be more difficult or would take a little more forethought from a storyteller to run um so i think well wraith can be would be a challenging pairing i don't think it would be impossible by any means uh, it's that the main obstruction to crossing wraith over with ghost hunters is as soon as you start getting granular about what a ghost is and that's what wraith does because you're playing them ghosts lose some of their narrative power um at least in my opinion so humans from my perspective and the way they're presented in ghost hunters see ghosts largely as defined by passions and fetters their core principles whereas wraiths know well there's far more to them than that you know they've got shadows they've got pathos they've got arcanoi this this ghost should be able to do this and that and the other and that's the kind of stuff mortals really don't need to know about so i would i'd say wraith is up there as a game that I wouldn't immediately pair with Ghost Hunters, despite, you know, there's a bit of an irony there. Mm-hmm. But if I was to go with my heart, I think probably Demon the Fallen. <laughs> uh, and I, I really like Demon the Fallen. I don't necessarily like it as a World of Darkness game, but that's another story altogether. Uh, but, but I think Demon the Fallen is actually just don't see it having any common ground with a game of Ghost Hunters. Uh, I it is so far and beyond dealing with aspects of uh, Abrahamic myth or you know dogma or whatever uh, that dealing with something as petty as a haunted house feels like maybe a bit of fun for a one shot, but certainly not enough meat on the bone for a chronicle. Um, so. Whereas every other game, whether it, even looking at those sort of um, what may be considered B-tier World of Darkness games, The Mummy, The Resurrection, Hunter, The Reckoning, and Demon of the Fallen, and I don't mean that in a, from a position of quality, I mean they are the ones that are most easily forgotten because they've only had a single edition each. Um, Hunter could work quite easily, although I imagine there'd be something of a pecking order between Ghost Hunters and Hunter the Re- Hunters from Hunter the Reckoning due to the imbued issue. And Mummy the Resurrection works very nicely because there's a whole, uh, there's a whole game of dealing with the dead and the land of the dead. So, yeah. Let's go for, let's go for Demon the Fallen. Okay. Good. Learning all kinds of things. <laughs> <laughs> um... So, what if you had? I know it's going to be a more difficult question, I suppose. But what is the one aspect of this book that you personally enjoy the most? Mm. There's probably a part that not many people would expect, and it's the storytelling advice. Uh, it's a section I think a lot of people ignore in a lot of books because, especially if they are uh, practice storytellers, they think, "Well, why do I need advice anymore?" But this book really goes to town on how to run a good ghost story. And that's a very different proposition to running a good vampire story or any other World of Darkness story. Because, as I mentioned earlier, ghosts, in my view, are 
best when they are narrative devices or they are the central plot. And you could even see them as a puzzle to be solved rather than something you've got to hit enough times before it dies. And there's lots of different ways you can approach a ghost story. You can, of course, approach a ghost story as something that needs an exorcism. You could approach a ghost story as a ghost needs its uh, fetters settled, you know, it's unfinished business, that sort of thing. You could be just simply be playing a reality TV crew looking to prove the existence of a ghost and stumbling upon something that you weren't intending on doing. And the storytelling section really covers in detail the various ways you can tell a different ghost story for different sort of uh, tiers of horror and uh, interaction with the supernatural. How much of this game is going to be investigation and how much of it is going to be running away or immersing yourself in the supernatural. And that's why there's lots of options uh, among the various organizations and conspiracies in this group, like the Arcanum, who have appeared in Hunters Hunted, uh, or, and government-sponsored organizations who dedicate them to their lives to researching the supernatural and codifying it, all the way through to those paranormal investigators who walk around with a digital camera and just hope to put something up on YouTube or Twitch that gets them a few views. They may not believe in what they're doing until it comes time that they discover something they can't explain. And so, yeah, uh, that storytelling chapter I'm really fond of. I'm also fond of the bit I wrote. <laughs> As a writer, I guess should be. Uh, I wrote all the case files in this game because I'm a big fan of story hooks. And so... There's lots of different stories, lots of different hooks, whether it's a ghost hunter's account before they disappeared, whether it's a just a tale of a of of a supposed haunting, or a phantom hitchhiker, or a serial killer that hasn't quite died and has continued his streaks post-mortem. Um, there's a lot of different stories in there, some of which I've adapted from things like my a big reader's digest book of ghost stories that i've actually got and made playable in the world of darkness some of them are clues and links to other world of darkness games whether it's orpheus whether it's a vampire i think that oh that sounded like there was a ghost right there yeah um, Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and for instance i think there's a section in the case files where there's a ghost hunter looking into Ballard Industries from Chicago by Night. Uh, this was before I wrote on V5 Chicago by Night, I wrote this. And the fact that, going back to my point, that most mortals, most humans, think ghosts are more a more reasonable proposition than vampires, this person looks into the character of Horatio Ballard, who has apparently been alive for over 100 years and running a company for that long as well, and comes to the conclusion this person must be a ghost. That, that it doesn't even enter their head that this person could be a vampire. So, you know, there's lots of lovely entries into playing a Ghost Hunters game like that. And it's also another easy way of introducing crossover into your stories. Nice. Uh, actually, as a side tangent, I did like that in uh, your V5 Chicago by Night book that, that there were subtle nods to many other game lines when you started reading about characters and uh, pieces of Chicago. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Chicago by Night is very close to my heart. Uh, I think while 
in some respects, Beckett's Jihad Diary is going to be the book. If I'm remembered for anything in the world of role-playing game books, it'll probably be Beckett's, but the World of Darkness book I'm proudest of in many ways is Chicago by Night. We just fit so much information in there, so many story hooks, so many links, so many, so much utility for different fans and players and storytellers. So it, it always uh, makes me happy to hear that people are enjoying that book. So we spent a lot of time making it perfect. Yeah, I got to uh, run a virtual Gen Con event with Chicago by Night this past Gen Con. So Lovely, and I hope it went well. It did. It did. A um, couple, couple eagle, eager beavers that are a little harder to rein in virtually, but you know they were passionate. I just had to make sure they didn't eclipse everyone else at the table. Yeah, yeah, that can happen. Um, and uh, speaking of con games, I know that you run occasionally at cons, and so I was wondering if you, this is another two-part question, is mm-hmm. what are the differences in a Ghost Hunters game uh, that you would do running at a con versus maybe with your home group? What kind, of, uh, what kind of changes would you make and what kind of things would you draw inspiration from? That's a good question. So, con games, for me, tend to be about hitting a certain number of emotive beats uh, in a short space of time. Not like a machine gun, otherwise the effect very quickly wears off. Uh, It's all about finding a good pace to your story, much like a movie, I suppose, where you can either keep ratcheting up the tension until there's an explosive finale, or you can intersperse the story with a few moments of horror. Uh, So that by the end of it, there's a sense of relief that the characters got out of it alive, for instance, or that a few of them did, or one of them did. Uh, And that's how I would do a Ghost Hunters story, in, in a similar way as to how I would structure a Call of Cthulhu scenario, except I don't go for the expectation uh, that some people have that I really dislike that uh, you've only run a successful Call of Cthulhu story if everyone's dead or mad. Yeah. And I think that's very lazy, honestly. Um, you can tell so many fantastic Call of Cthulhu stories that don't end up that way. And Ghost Hunters is the same. Now for a Chronicle, I think the the real reward comes through the depth of exploration in the world of darkness. Um, again, beneficial that this is a source book rather than a core rule book and doesn't have to build its own world of ghost hunters around it. It is a wonderful entry point into any of those worlds. And that means your ghost hunters could start as hopelessly naive or they could be a lovely crossover mix group. There could be the a couple of people from a sort of movie crew or a couple of YouTubers who are teamed up with a researcher and teamed up with a government spook and teamed up with this person and whatnot. And they could all be investigating this haunting, if you like, um, for different reasons and all come to different conclusions and all learn a little more about their respective areas in the world of darkness and who's influencing them. So there would be a gradual... Uh, eye-opening, I guess, gradual awakening for each character in a lengthy chronicle of Ghost Hunters where, by its conclusion, you could have a character who is now supernatural 
uh, for instance, embraced by a vampire who has literally awakened and become probably a Thanatos. Um, but yeah, um, I think that's that's how I would do it. I've actually run Ghost Hunters a fair amount. Uh, there's medium rules in in Ghost Hunters as well, so you can actually play supernatural mortals too. But I've been running a Ghost Hunters story alongside Hunter the Vigil, um, so you can even cross it over with Chronicles of Darkness because uh, I'm a big fan of just stealing setting from a game and applying it to another. I'm, I never feel restricted by rules. I've never quite understood why people are. Um, you know, they, they'll look at a, I don't know, Forgot. I'm a big fan of the Forgotten Realms, or was a big fan of the Forgotten Realms, especially around second and third edition. I don't play D and D nearly as much now, and when I do run D and D and Pathfinder, I always set it in that sort of second edition, third edition era. And yet, there are some things from the Forgotten Realms fourth edition and fifth edition I love. Uh, some setting things I love. Some I really don't, but some I do. And I won't feel like, oh, well, I'm not running a fourth edition game, so I can't have this part of the continent in it and just shrug and move on. I just think, well, it's just part of my world now. <laughs> and and that's nothing revolutionary. Plenty of GMs do it. Uh, but a lot don't. It's like a mental block. If it isn't on the page, I can't do it. And so I pair up Ghost Hunters with Hunter the Vigil quite happily. One is World of Darkness, one is Chronicles of Darkness. But I think the two work really well hand in hand, especially as the Hunters in Vigil are generally more mundane than the hunters in hunter the reckoning and ghost hunters as a general rule are soft and squishy and vulnerable just like the hunters in vigil so yeah um uh, that's how i would do a chronicle uh, uh, you will never get a short answer from me keegan that's okay. whenever i answer a question i will go on and on and on i'm totally fine with that i like thorough answers it means i don't have to i have more time to think up my own questions and this actually dovetailed. You just inspired my next one, uh, because you're a game developer, and I know that not every rule you want to implement in a game is necessarily something that you you feel should be for you know mass publication. What is a house rule that you would do for your own hunters uh, or ghost hunters game that you you personally like a lot, but you don't think really fit the tone of the book and wider publication? Um. Another very good question, actually. Uh, and it's implementing tactics from Hunter the Vigil. So I've, put, I've ran a couple of Ghost Hunters uh, chronicles now um, using the material as it was being written because I like to test material I'm writing and um, using the manuscript as written. And each time I have gone back to Hunter the Vigil and thought, let's transfer some of this over and see how it works. Because there is a lot of Hunter the Vigil DNA in this book, even though it's for the World of Darkness. And I think it just works really well. I've never been too much of a, I guess, home brewer in the sense that I never come up with a convoluted rule system, that's for sure, uh, for my own group. I may make up some kind of luck point or fate point mechanic just if I think there's a game where failure is too arbitrary and... I think most people do that now uh, after seeing 
the benefit of having things like momentum and rewrites and they came from beneath the sea and, and such like, it's very hard to go back to a game where if you just fail, sorry, it's a failure. Uh, it's nice to have a the possibility of a re-roll and give power to the players. But um, I do that with... I've, I've certainly implemented a lot of vigil stuff in that regard in Ghost Hunters, even to the extent that I have introduced some of the compacts and conspiracies from Vigil as possible organizations you can work for. I do it in the other way um, for Werewolf. Whenever I run Werewolf the Forsaken, I tend to put uh, Fomori or Pentex. I don't always do both, but they're elements I enjoy so much, and my players always enjoy interacting with them, that it's nice to have those... Uh, cornerstones that you can refer to uh, as part of your horror setting yeah uh we actually because i started on forsaken as well um and that's been said on here a couple of times but we did i had a friend who started in the world of old world of darkness uh when we started playing and he mentioned Fomori, and we actually started calling the uh the ridden from forsaken as Fomori because it was just easier to pronounce <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I've um, I've I've changed over the years to prefer running Forsaken to Apocalypse, and I love Apocalypse, believe me. But there's something very clean about Forsaken. Uh, there's a uh, well, when I say clean, there's the the tribal setups, the pack setups in particular, the territoriality of it is more relatable than the more Numinous, uh, I know Numina often appear in Chronicles of Darkness, but the more spiritually driven apocalypse. Obviously, the spirits play a large part in Forsaken as well, but I think the werewolves in Forsaken have a greater attachment to humanity and mortality, which is always very important in my games, than the werewolves in Apocalypse, who have a more mercenary attitude towards their human kin. Uh, and what use they can make of them, uh, all the way through to the more alien nature of Forsaken's antagonists. Uh, I, I basically campaigned to be the developer on the Shunned by the Moon book for Wealth Forsaken because I love the game so much that I really wanted to develop a book for it, uh, even though Chronicles of Darkness isn't typically my wheelhouse, so I've worked on quite a few of the books now. Um, because I love the array of antagonists in Wealth of Forsaken. I think it's what got one of the best capacities for a monster manual or a bestiary of any Chronicles of Darkness or World of Darkness game. And I think Shun by the Moon does a brilliant job of displaying the sheer bizarre array of antagonists you can have in that game. Oh, absolutely. I actually took a lot of uh, the pack dynamics from Forsaken and put them into our... Uh... I guess I can call it a long-running actual play now. It's been going on for a year. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> and um, that uh, that kind of more, it's more of a familial unit, not a military unit. And how every pack kind of tries to walk that line, which I yeah. found. Go ahead. No, 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 I agree. Um, I, it's something I do, and I think it's it's something I like hearing people doing, 
because it shows that you aren't just letting books sit on a shelf. You are harvesting them for the bits you like. Uh, when we initially wrote V5, there were some people that criticized us because we were stealing from Requiem. But for one thing, Requiem and Masquerade are, of course, owned by the same company. And for another, why not use a really strong mechanic like Touchstones, like Blood Potency? Um, it, it's, it helps make the game better. And I think that that kind of sharing attitude between games, ultimately, it's not going to make some kind of homogenized game, which is lacking in character, hopefully. Um, it will ideally make a game that just has the best parts of it, all games. Not that there's ever going to be an ultimate in games, but I think we should feel free to customize our games as we see fit. Oh, yeah. I, I, I 100% agree. I, um, I do something similar with Fomori. I humanize them on occasion just to unsettle my players to some degree. <laughs> oh, definitely. They should. They and the ghosts and ghosts and ghost hunters and... Um, even whites in Vampire should have those occasional glimpses of humanity, whether it's the desperate face just suddenly peering through the writhing mound of maggots in the case of Fomori that says, you know, mummy, please, and then disappears again into the monster, or starts speaking with a child's voice or something like that. It's, it adds to the creepiness. Mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, you, can, you can push it in the creepy direction, or you can push it in the uh, ethical quandary uh, direction where there is clearly a sentience in there is there any way for it to be saved and to go back to the ghost hunters thing it's very easy I think when you're playing a Giovanni or a Hakata in Vampire to just see ghosts as tools and weapons and things to be abused it's very easy to forget that these are supposed to be sentient creatures with hopes and wishes and passions and fetters. And so again, on the subject of crossover, you've got a Giovanni and a mortal Giovanni, perhaps, as a ghost hunter in the same group. The vampire Giovanni is just going to be treating that ghost like they are trash. And the mortal ghost hunter who may be able to perceive it because perhaps they're a medium or perhaps they've got the technology to do so is going to be able to see that ghost as a person is going to be able to see that the reason they're hanging around or is hearing why the ghost is hanging around. The Giovanni vampire doesn't give a shit, but the mortal gives a shit because they can relate to it. They understand it. And again, it brings up all kinds of moral quandaries. It can create friction and drama and uh, conflict uh, within a group. Or maybe the Giovanni vampire is an antagonist and you've got to side with the ghost. Um, I think if you give your monsters the occasional glimpse of humanity, you are strengthening your game a huge amount. So I, I just seem to like my two-parted questions. Uh, today <laughs> is <laughs> if you like is um, then how do you construct in general moral quandaries for your game and then you already answered it to some degree but do you have a really good example that besides the Giovanni one of maybe a moral quandary for a ghost hunters game 
Uh, yeah, so the best way to construct a moral quandary is if you're running a chronicle, you get to know your players and you get to know what they want out of their player characters. Easiest way to create any kind of moral quandary in any game is to assist your players in creating their support crew. So whether it's their family members, their friends, their employer, whatever. Uh, because as soon as you introduce people who are vulnerable and at risk, you shouldn't always go for the revenge angle of, um, you know, I'm going to... Your your wife has just been murdered, now you want revenge. That's, that's usable, but it's also quite lazy. It's quite tested. But you can certainly have someone... Uh, I recently ran a game, a vampire, where... A, this is going to be a bit of a tangent, but I was quite pleased with this. The one of the characters' uh, touchstones got in touch with her, and she was desperate, panicked over the phone, and saying, "Please, please, I need a place to stay." This touchstone doesn't know her. Vampire is a vampire. I need a place to stay. My boyfriend's going to kill me. My boyfriend's going to kill me. He's coming after me. I did something really stupid. Um, and the vampire calms her touchstone down can sense the bond between them, certainly doesn't want her uh, put at risk due to her angry boyfriend and says, okay, where can we meet? And the friend says, I'll meet you under this uh, underpass, this subway, and I can tell you about it. Um, but I'm really scared of him. I'm going to take my gun. And the vampire said, but you know, just don't do something stupid. So the vampire met her touchstone in this underpass just as or just reached the underpass just as she heard a gunshot. Ran to the site and discovered that her friend had just shot the guy. Immediately, the vampire assumed the touchstone had shot her boyfriend who had come after her. But no, the touchstone was just so panicked she shot a homeless guy who she thought was coming for her, but was probably just asking for some change. And now there's the moral quandary of, oh, fuck, what do we do with this guy? He's not dead yet. Um, and there was all kinds of drama about dropping him off at hospital. And then when it finally got to the point where um, the vampire got her touchstone back to a haven and was in a safe enough, a secure enough place to ask what happened, what's going on, it turned out that... Yes, the touchstone and her boyfriend did have a very tempestuous, probably even violent relationship, and she had reached a point where she just wanted to hurt him, and so she stole her boyfriend, a drug dealer, had drugs in the house, and so she stole a brick of heroin from him. And now, of course, he's angry with her, and he wants to hurt her. <laughs> and, um, and now, that's the vampire's problem. Wow. Because the touchstone has arguably done something that's immoral. Well, she's definitely shot a guy, but she's also in this somewhat morally grey area where she's done also done something with a brick of heroin, and we've still not ascertained where she put it. Um, or, you know, did she flush it? Did she throw it in a river? Did she give it to someone, just stash it at a school or something stupid like that? Um, and the reason I go into this is because you can very easily make a moral quandary uh, out of a game if you have knowledge of the player character's mortal bonds. Then it doesn't always have to be mortal, but it usually works to have them be, uh, be linked in some way to people less powerful than themselves. It's very difficult to create a sense of guilt or compassion if a hoary old elder is being tortured 
and you've got to go and rescue them, that's more about a mercenary desire to earn a boon or something like that. Um, but if it's a newly embraced fledgling that you t said you were going to be looking after, and the one night you turn your back, they get kidnapped by the Second Inquisition, all of a sudden you've got to step into the breach and see whether you can save them from a horrible demise. In terms of ghost hunters, it's a similar kind of thing. Um, I would say that the best way to introduce a moral quandary in a ghost hunters game is do something relatable, do something that the players can show a bit of empathy toward. Uh, and for that, you sort of kind of go to the Wraith, the Oblivion well of encountering a ghost who is doing something horrible but you discover the reason the ghost is doing something horrible. And it may be that they are compelled into doing something horrible because of something horrible that happened to them or to someone that they loved, and that they are going to only find peace if they get a chance to speak to someone that they wronged in life. And then you've got the horrible proposition as a protagonist of, do I introduce one of this ghost's victims from when they were alive to the ghost so that the ghost can find peace even though it's going to potentially screw up the person that I'm bringing here you know we need to exercise this ghost we need to make this house livable again or stop the ghost from preying on hitchhikers or whatever it is that it does um, but to do that we potentially have to manage the mind of the person who can set it free so, you know, you can set those kinds of things up, and it's not limited to ghost stories, but having the moral quandary in mind, I think, is the key to telling a good World of Darkness story. Certainly. Uh, the current one I have going on is that the leader of their sept wants unity. They all love him as a, like, secondary father figure to all of them. But he's kind of being a colonizer, because it was a former Uptena sept, and uh, he has the Uctena there, and he's trying to create a sense of unity, but by doing that, he's also shutting several of the Uctena out of positions of power while trying to aspire to a lofty goal. Mm. And so now, and the players are now seeing the flaw in his thinking, but aren't sure if dethroning him is the right thing simply because the characters and the players love this character so much <laughs> that's always that's always a problem when you've got a charismatic asshole um you know someone who is doing something that is clearly immoral but is also a good friend mm -hmm. um at one point do the bonds of friendship die it's very easy to say as soon as they cross a line but when the line is historic um you can start making all kinds of excuses for your own behavior and for their behavior. Uh, so yeah, in Werewolf especially, that is a massive theme that you can constantly trace through, whether it's uh, exactly as you say, let's say a, a Geta Fenris or a Fianna um, on Bunyip or Uktena or you know, any kind of, uh, I guess, ancestral and depleted tribes territory. Um there's a lot of thick quagmires there where arguably the Red Talons probably should have had a very long look in the mirror and not walked through it after Australia. But nope, they justified it to themselves and moved on. Yep. <laughs> it's the rest of the nation who just kind of have to pick up the pieces and occasionally, if they're feeling brave, they'll raise it at the moot and say, um, do we think uh, we should 
make some amends with the local spirits around here? Do you think you're ready to do that yet? Red Talon, you know, it was your great-great-grandmother that participated in that horrible genocide, and the Red Talon will just fold his arms and say, next question. <laughs> Why would I apologize for killing not wolves? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, haven't you read? Yeah, I'm not even a hu- I'm not even a homin, and I've read enough books to know that thylacines aren't wolves. <laughs> I, I, I kind of that makes sense now that you brought up the red towns and the uh, the bunyip, since you seem to enjoy those memes when I make them. <laughs> yeah. Um, I. I think one of the greatest things you can have when designing a game is something that's already lost. Mm. A, for, a fallen empire, a fallen people, a fallen religion. It does something to inspire players in a way that having a solid setting never does. I mean, all settings should be based to a degree around conflict, not necessarily bloody fist fighting, but to have a backdrop that you can interact with and where there are stakes, where there's drama inbuilt in the setting, because the stagnant conservative background just doesn't ter- doesn't inspire. But having something tragic, that, and you can see it with every single player that ever wanted to play the last Salubri or last Cappadocian or last Bunyip or last White Howler, for whatever reason, inspires people because people want to play characters that are special and people want to play in games where they have to pick through the wreckage of their ancestors crimes and maybe make amends for it which i think is a very decent thing it's it's nice that there's that aspirational part of role play that uh you you've got to hope that some role players will then translate into their actual lives and the way they comport themselves around people who have lost a lot due to you know uh, ancestral purges and genocides but we can but hope yep so i got two more questions i know it's getting a little late over there oh i'm enjoying myself as you can tell again i I never shut up we can we can go as long as you you'd like (laughs) oh thank you very much keegan that's quite quite a proposition i well you know i took (laughs) I worked an extra hour yesterday so that I could meet, meet the, meet, uh, make this meeting. Good lord, I can't English, though. Well, you, you have <laughs> sacrificed much, young Keegan. Uh, right. let, it, let it not be in vain. Oh, man, when it's in technology, it is a sacrifice. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Don't um, worry. In a, in a couple of weeks, everything's going down the tubes anyway. <laughs> um, so, thinking about the book again, then now. Because you mentioning Werewolf is a little surprising to me, just because that was not a game I was thinking would link with uh, Ghost Hunters, is uh, while working on this book, what was the most surprising thing you found working on this that people were drawn to or that really inspired uh, the writing team? Hmm. I think uh, one of the most fun things was uh, exploring lots of ghost media. and I think all of the writers really enjoyed that. We, Whenever we make a project on Onyx Path, the developers tend to encourage the writers to immerse themselves in the media associated with it. Some games, that's harder than others. But Ghost Hunters, thankfully, it isn't. Uh, and there's uh, a lot of trash out there, of course, uh, in terms of ghost media. 
Uh, it's one of the easiest horror movie, I guess, subgenres to make. Um, but there's also a lot of very prime quality media, um, whether that's The Shining or whether that's the short stories of M.R. James, a very famous uh, British ghost novelist of the late 19th, early 20th century. He was excellent. Um, yeah, through to your um, movies. I guess Blair Witch probably started the uh, not just the found footage uh, genre, subgenre, but also the ghost stories through that lens subgenre. Uh, it's interesting because we were all looking at those movies, and there's a gap of kind of about 10 years between Blair Witch Project and all the paranormal activities, insidiouses, conjurings, and, and so on. Um, and it's, it is a strange thing because Blair Witch Project came out and following Blair Witch, there was that big East Asian uh, renaissance in cinema, well, not even renaissance, introduction of horror cinema from Japan, South Korea, largely, to American and European audiences, movies like Ringu, The Grudge, Dark Water, which were all ghost stories, uh, among many, many others. And we kind of got high on that for a good three or four years, five years. Obviously, there are still very good movies now, but it seemed to be the only ghost media we were getting. And then came the real, uh, I guess, embarkation of found footage with the paranormal activities, with all the movies that are shot through webcams, through CCTV, through night vision, like wreck you know record the spanish movie um and yeah i think all of us really enjoyed and found inspiring that journey through ghost media and horror movies uh, I, that went on to inspire me with they came from beyond the grave and uh, now what we're working on they came from camp murder lake which is an expansion to beyond the grave because not just watching horror movies, but seeing that kind of ebb and flow and the arc over which they various things become popular is just fascinating uh, from an anthropological standpoint, from a societal standpoint. You know, what is it that attracts us to these things? Why is this in vogue right now? And for a good while recently, it was all zombies all the time. And now zombies are fading out. And it'll be interesting to see what comes next. Yeah, um, I, I will say when I'm thinking about this, I was thinking of the uh, the Netflix show uh, Haunting on Hill House. Yeah, I yeah. Well, I I've not seen it yet, and that's a damn crime because I hear it's fantastic, and so I've not seen Bly Manor either, which is a sequel. Yep, we haven't watched uh, that yet either. Uh, we have too big of a backlog of shows because uh, quarantine did not uh, shrink my workday like uh, most. <laughs> no, no, I never had the opportunity to learn a new language. Do, do you remember? Do you remember those days at the start of quarantine when everyone was saying, "Oh, this will be an opportunity to lose even more weight, to to get to learn a new language, to you know, mow the fucking lawn or something <laughs> like that," but. For, for the majority of us, it was either, nope, now you've got to do all the childcare you once relied upon a nursery to do, <laughs> or, 
or now you've got to now that you're working from home you realize that you're going to take far fewer sick days because you can still work while you're sick mm -hmm. and um you'll work late because there's no one to tell you to stop and all of that fun stuff. So no, no. Um, yeah. I I feel your pain there. I've not been getting through any more TV or video games than I was beforehand. I built my own gym. That's nice, but that's that's about it. Ah, that's good. See, see, were you buying um, were you buying equipment wholesale essentially? Yeah, we had a squat rack before quarantine. Uh, thanks to uh, a guy who was supposed to be my roommate about a year. He's the co-host of the show. Uh, he's just at work right now. But uh, he he had a squat rack. He brought it in when we first bought the house. Uh, I built it when quarantine started. Uh, but he didn't move down until uh, last week. Uh, and I bought the house a year ago. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so. But I started buying well, benches, I got dumbbells, and now I have a leg press, so. Oh, well, I hope you did well, because I know that when quarantine sort of kicked off in earnest, there was a lot, an awful lot of people that started building home gyms in America, and probably everywhere else, but largely America, because uh, everyone has a garage in America. <laughs> and um, the cost of gym equipment just shot up. Because, yeah, you know, no, no one was selling this stuff for cheap when they knew that no one was going to be going to their local gym. Yeah, exactly. Um, so all of a sudden, free weights cost the same as a car. Yeah, um, yeah. And I didn't, I didn't get screwed too badly. My, uh, I got a leg press at, I call it reasonable. It's still expensive, but it was definitely not like when quarantine started prices. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm lucky. I go back to my regular gym now they've got a lot of uh decent safety measures in place everyone cleans the equipment before and after they get on um you wear masks when you go in and come out and there's nice social distancing between machines machines are still there that just aren't allowed to be used to enforce social distancing so that's good ah no um, um i i too many people around here I, I didn't even bother with the gym because I didn't know. Is too many people here dick-nosing with their nose hanging out of their masks. There's yeah, all that stuff. So oh, I just I, I, I canceled my yeah. I just canceled my gym membership and now I don't have to go because I have everything I need. I see that at the gym more than anywhere else. I know this is this must be a fascinating tangent for listeners, but <laughs> the number of people who are walking around especially people on inductions i don't know what it is about people on gym inductions feel the need to okay well i'm going to keep my mask on but i'll let my nose hang out just for the induction oh fuck off <laughs> you know just learn how to wear a mask before you learn how to you know work a cross trainer for christ's sake um yeah. oh, there we go well uh that tangent inspired a new question at least is oh since my <laughs> werewolf game is coming up on 2020 in game years because it's currently set in 2019 because i said it like a year prior to when i started running it is uh how do you uh try how do you keep your games topical without you know turning what could be a lot of people's personal pain into something that's an entertaining story for your players how do you how do you work it out to be respectful to the subject matter you have at hand, especially when it's very topical. 
Yeah, it's very easy to trivialize um, the real world in in horror games, as we found out with some of uh, our content in Vampire the Masquerade, um, fifth edition, and it was quite rightly pointed out as problematic, and quite rightly edited out and replaced with better material. Um, but in terms of how I run it. It's interesting. I feel I've matured a great deal as a GM and a storyteller over the last 15 years. Christ, I hope so. I mean, you hope that you have you experience some kind of emotional maturity and growth as you get older that doesn't harden you. And so I would say I approach things differently now to how I did when I was younger. And largely... I, I probably wouldn't even include something like COVID in a role-playing game because people want an escape from that. It's much the same as I wouldn't include a story all about Donald Trump. There's a really good scenario by Jacqueline Brick for Cult Divinity Lost that is all about the uh, Trump-Clinton election. Um, but it's not one I would play or run myself, largely because I don't like to evoke that at a table which is hopefully about escapism and escapism can still involve politics mind you but i don't want to be taken straight from the headlines law and order style but that's, when... and that's fair i i just decided i was going to keep keep covid happening in my chronicle so i'm just i'm working out the problem so to speak mm. well when it comes to dealing with hard-hitting subjects, subjects about which people uh, can quite rightly feel sensitive and not want to play through, whether that's... And the big, the heavy hitters in that regard are things like racism, uh, sexual abuse, um, anything involving domestic abuse or, or harm to children, things like that. Um, there's obviously an awful lot of role players who don't want that at the, at the gaming table and understandably so. Sometimes if you're running a horror game and uh, you do have a gaming group that wants to really delve into that dark material and Cult Divinity Lost is a game that often does that kind of thing, uh, the best way to do it, I find, is to avoid being gratuitous. You're not um, running Eli Roth's Hostel you're not running uh, a Serbian film. You're not running The Human Centipede, which, of course, is largely smoke and mirrors anyway, that movie. Uh, but there's often very little to be gained by shoving that kind of horror from the real world in someone's face and making them have to... That's an awful metaphor to use with Human Centipede. Um, but all you're going to get is revulsion, and the potential for people to think, you know what, I don't want to play this anymore. Oh, I agree. Uh, you're, you're, you're never going to get someone saying, wow, that was a fantastic experience, I can't wait for the next one. And if they <laughs> do, you've got to worry about them, I think. Um, so you've, it's best to deal with things through illusion, allusion, not illusion, and through, I guess, inference, um, and of course, through going through safety guidelines, checks, X card, and so on, before you start gaming, while always giving players the opportunity to opt out. And I would say that dealing with things like COVID is the same, not because COVID in its own right is something that's revolting, 
but because it's something that's touched an awful lot of people's lives and it's in the sense that a lot of people know someone who has grown sick from COVID or even died from COVID. I have an uncle who's died from COVID and I'm not feeling deeply affected by the presence of the disease, but there may well be someone who is. I certainly wouldn't want to trivialize it in a game. I wouldn't make it a vampire disease, a disease that affects vampires. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> Absolutely no. not. No, just no. that that's just part of the setting now. You just got to work around it. Uh, that, yeah, that was uh, more of my thought process behind it. It's, a, it's an interesting conundrum because, yeah, you could play an interesting session or three of vampire, let's say, where you're your usual prey are no longer going to nightclubs because all the nightclubs are shut. If you're playing that sort of typical vampire goes to the bar to feed. So now your vampire has to change up their method. Um, that can work. I wouldn't... Yeah, I certainly wouldn't... Probably oh, yeah. wouldn't have a plot where a touchstone it comes down with COVID and how does the vampire cope with it. Yeah. Although, again, again, if the players wanted to explore that and everyone was happy and the idea felt good at the time then maybe but yeah the, the, the key really is to always check with the players what they're comfortable with and to never just go into gratuity I, I've I've been gratuitous with horror games in the past there's things I've done as a storyteller that I regret even things that the players did all agree to in advance and they were subsequently shocked by how revolting it was and that you know the things i wouldn't do again uh, i like to think that it's one of those things yeah you you grow and handle better as you mature i agree no lots of times i look back and go nope that was a terrible choice on my part as a storyteller oops so <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah uh so I don't know if I have anything more for uh, for Ghost Hunter questions. We could talk about games till the end of time, though. For a... <laughs> oh, probably, yeah. probably. Uh, but yeah, we should we should probably wrap up at some point. <laughs> I agree. So uh, I'll ask the uh, the last big question that we try and ask everyone. I think I forgot to ask with Neil when he was on, but that's because the state was on fire. <laughs> and I know there's yeah, that things happened. On my... <laughs> Who would have thought this would have all started with Australia being on fire and there? And it's all all gone downhill since there, really. Yeah. We yeah, uh, weird, weird. Oh yeah, well it's weird to think that that was the highlight of the year. Australia <laughs> being on fire. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I suppose mm. no, I did ask Neil. Never mind. I actually asked him the question, so it still works out. So um, our traditional question is resources people all that you know are handled what how what is the your dream game to run if resources people etc was not an issue my dream game to run hmm oh i've never even thought of that um which is strange i guess i've always had bucket lists and then if i put a game on a bucket list i generally just think well fuck it i'll just run it and I do it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've ne I've never suffered for lack of 
players, uh, which is very, uh, puts me in a very fortunate position, I know. And I've also never had a, the overriding desire to be a player instead of a GM. So that means there's always someone on hand to run, being me. Um, but the truth is, the game I can most easily relax into, for which I need to do barely any prep, if any, at all, is what I mentioned earlier, it's Call of Cthulhu. Um, not because it's a dream game in the sense that this would fulfill some kind of fantasy of mine. Uh, I, I have ran most games I would ever want to, and I'm just pleased to be able to go back to them and look forward to new surprising releases. But Call of Cthulhu is a game I never fail to enjoy. I always have fresh ideas for and I just find its simplicity as a concept so refreshing. I don't need to know reams of meta plot. I don't need to know complicated subsystems. I don't need to. I don't need to spend hours making characters or knowing a character's special abilities or anything like that. It is a simple, his, vaguely historical game, and it doesn't even have to be. It's more about tone than history. And a really simple setting. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I would go for Call of Cthulhu by Chaosium. All right. Uh, Matthew, thank you very much for coming on the show. Where uh, where can people find you? They can find me on MatthewDawkins.com, uh, where there is a very lengthy resume. So if you're interested in any of the books I've worked on, please do check that out. There's also links to my Patreon, my Twitter, my YouTube, and anywhere else that I happen to be lurking on social media these days. If people do want to back my Patreon, they can, uh, because that's how they get games run for them. I've currently got four games on the go. I'm running Call of Cthulhu, Pathfinder... Vampire and Broken Rooms, which is a game of sort of parallel worlds, I guess, uh, interdimensional horror. And uh, I'm always happy to run more if I, well, with time permitting. But right now we've got spaces in some of those games, and uh, one of the games is coming to an end, so always looking for new players. All right, perfect. I'm Keegan. Brendan couldn't make it, but you can find us on Facebook. YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, but you will never find me on Twitter. I find it a cesspool. Have a good day. It night. is. <laughs>